Hey, welcome back to the studio. Ian Jindal here, Editor-in-Chief of Internet Retailing and... Hi, and it's Jamie Merrick. <laughs> oh, that's it. The man who needs no subtitle. Jamie, lovely to see you again. Now, we have food and beverage on our collective minds today. Is that not right? It always is. Food and beverage always on my mind, Ian. But today, we're taking a global view on the one hand with PepsiCo, then a specialty spin with Wittard of Chelsea. And so we're happy to be speaking to leaders from both of those. We're going to kick off with Rui Francisco from what sounds like a lovely office in Lisbon. So we're very jealous of that. But we're going to dive in uh, to Rui, who is the director of e-commerce for PepsiCo. And he's just going to pick up and tell us a bit about PepsiCo and his role. So, Rui, over to you. So, PepsiCo is a global consumer goods company that has presence in more than 200 countries. And in addition to our flagship cola beverage, Pepsi, right, we also have many other brands that bring a smile to consumer spaces. These brands are also within the beverage category, like Pepsi. So we have brands like 7up and markets across Europe and other parts of the world. We have brands like Mountain Dew and Tropicana. We also have snacks brands like Lay's, Walkers, Doritos, and Cheetos. And we also have a very strong nutritional portfolio with brands like Waker, Oats, and, uh, and cereals. Wow. Yeah. I've been with PepsiCo for over 10 years, and I started my career with PepsiCo in the United States. And the first role that I did out of the United States was actually mergers and acquisitions, which is the team that looks into what companies we should be buying, or sometimes even doing minority investments, setting up joint ventures with interesting partners, or sometimes even looking into divestitures. I did that for a couple of years, then I moved into sales strategy to get to work with customers. And this was also North America. So meeting and uh, defining sales strategies with the big ones across the United States. Sorry, when you say customers, do you mean end consumers or are you talking about major supermarkets? So who are the customers we're talking about here? Very good clarification, Ian. It's our, our retail partners, so the supermarket and the distributors. Yeah. Right. So you're at the cutting edge then of discussing with them just how much cola and snacks could be shifted. Yeah, and to understand how we grow the categories together, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, when we talk about customers, we usually talk about our, our retail partners versus the shoppers or the consumers. And then just maybe to finish my, my, my background, it was in 2015 that I actually started working in e-commerce in the United States. Um, I was very passionate about this space as a shopper myself, already buying many things online. And I knew this was going to be an important avenue of growth. And I was part of the first team that started looking into commerce in the United States. I've been working in e-commerce ever since. A couple of years ago, I moved into Europe and I'm now the e-commerce director as part of the European sector in terms of how we develop our strategy for e-commerce and also how we execute it in the market. So tell me how that conversation went. So you've done your M&A, you're flying high, they send you out into the field to get beaten up by customers and see the sharp end of the industry. And then all of a sudden you think, do you know what, this e-commerce is a lark. How do you persuade anybody to give you a an e-commerce portfolio where there must be a whole pile of people who are sitting around thinking, I want that job instead. Why him, not me? What was the move, that conversation that brought you into e-commerce? Well, I think it was a, a couple of things. The first thing, as I mentioned, was definitely the degree of passion because even when I was doing that sales strategy role in the field, as you were saying, I was already kind of like saying, hey, e-commerce is important. We need to make sure that our consumers can find our products online. So I was already consistent with that message for, uh, for a few years. 
And then I think the other piece is, as we started looking into the retailers and the talent profile that they have on the other side in terms of how they grow the categories and how they grow their own businesses, many of those people are very similar background to mine, you know, having come from consulting, you know, people with MBAs. And so the type of talent profile that they were looking for actually was a bit of a match. And yeah, and although it was a very small team in the beginning, I made sure that I was allowed and I was doing the right networking <laughs> within the organization. Good. Well, I think that's a lesson in life, which is, uh, you know, don't just follow your passion, but make sure everyone knows you have it in the first yes. place. So <laughs> you moved back to the old world. And um, yes. tell me about the structure now, because it can always be a bit of a strain when you're in a global business that's got a US base, you land right. back in Europe, and then, um, you know, it's wrong time zone, wrong investment, who's doing mm-hmm. what. So how, how does PepsiCo make sure that this works effectively? Right. And specifically from an e-commerce angle, which is the Mm -hmm. angle that I'll speak about, it's a priority for our CEO. And it's been over a decade right now. We started building those capabilities a few years ago. Now they're a little bit more visible. But the fact that I moved from the United States into Europe and I'm able to work in an e-commerce team, it's because e-commerce is very important for us. And it comes from the the top down. Mm -hmm. Then also to get specifically to your, your question, like how does it work, right? So we have teams within the markets, right? We have our operational teams in countries like the UK, France, Turkey, and Russia, right? That are responsible for operating and delivering the business within those markets. And then what we've done over the last few years is actually to start investing in e-commerce resources within those operating units. So we have dedicated people to e-commerce within those markets that deal with the customers that are present in those markets, that know the shoppers of those markets as well. And then also work with the rest of the operating units, making sure that our products are available. And then my role as a sector person and uh, the team that covers all of Europe is to make sure that we have the right strategy, right? And the right execution within these markets, because there's a lot of things that we can learn from one market, pick it up and send it to the other. There's also a lot of benefit and synergies and having consistency in terms of how we approach uh, commerce. And, and that's basically the role that I do. And I, I'm on the phone in the morning with Russia, a little bit later in the afternoon with the UK, and then the next day with France and Turkey, ensuring that our plans are solid, that our, we're executing them well, and most of all, our products are available for our, for our shoppers and our consumers that want to buy them online. So just open that up a bit for us, because um, yes. we cover a lot of brands who are going direct to consumer. Some of them are digital native, some of them are focused, and they tend to be quite concentrated. So you can imagine someone turning around, picking something off a shelf, sticking in an envelope, sending it to consumers. Whereas because you've got such a developed, extensive network of wholesale through the retail chain already, then that is well-established, highly optimized, very well-controlled. And then you wander along and say, oh, can I do some e-commerce as well? How do you elbow a space for e-commerce on top of billions of euros worth of day-to-day transactions from corner shops to the biggest supermarkets on the planet. How how do you fit in? Yes. And it's a very good clarification uh, question, Ian, because the vast majority of the business that we do in selling our products online is actually those retail partners Mm -hmm. and the operations that they have online. And their e-commerce activities as well. Exactly. That's, That's exactly. So the vast majority of our efforts in selling our products online are with these retail partners. So we're talking about the likes of Tesco and NAS at Akaru in the UK. We're talking the likes of Leclerc, Leclerc, Carrefour, and Auchan 
in, in France and so on mm. for the other markets. So the vast majority and the biggest part of our focus, effort and resources is dedicated to this. As people are already going to these web shops, let's call them that way, and they're building their baskets of groceries, we want to make sure that our snacks products and our beverage products are available and that they're visible as well to be added to, to, mm. to the baskets. And in this spirit, it's very important for us key partnerships with players in this space. One of the few things that I can share with you, we've been leaning in behind some of the biggest players online. We have strategic partnerships with customers like Ocado in the United Kingdom and Tesco, which has actually granted us um, number one spot in e-commerce for the Advantage Group survey, which was mm-hmm. uh, definitely good recognition that we got last year in uh, 2019. But then if mm-hmm. we get into other markets like Netherlands with Picnic, we have a strategic partnership with them as well. If we get into Turkey, we're rapid delivery. So basically getting your products delivered to you in under 10 minutes, it's growing so, so fast. It's one of the key developments that we see there. We have partnerships with players like it here in that market as well. So it's mm-hmm. where we put most of our focus. Just like we sell offline via these partners, online, we also do it that way. Interesting. And of course, well, I think what's fun as e-commerce matures you know, we already talk about multi-channel, but this yeah. is another dimension as well, which is working with data, with feeds, with category management, with their promotional priorities and their regionality. So really a kind of a partnering approach that is sustainable, but also, you know, doesn't reinvent the wheel, I suppose. There's a lot of parallels from how we work with these customers all offline, right? In terms of how we develop the category, how we leverage insights and how we build capabilities. Yeah. that online, we want to make sure that we work with them in the same way to find good growth opportunities. And most of all, serve our shoppers and our consumers the best way that we can. Yeah. Great. Well, look, we've had uh, COVID, of course, uh, in the last <laughs> few months. And you know, one of the more humorous characterizations is how everyone's lying on their sofa eating Doritos and you know wanting to order their Pepsi um, via apps and so on. But how have you seen online grocery shopping change over this period. Now, I think you've been um, doing some research on this, have you not? Yes, absolutely. If we talk about who was the online grocery shopper before COVID, usually the, let's call it like the stereotypical demographics that we would describe would be a young family with young kids that lives in an urban area and that is usually, you know, in the higher income brackets, right? And they usually, you know, buy groceries online just because of convenience and practicality. With COVID, we saw many more people coming in into the online channel to buy their groceries. And of course, there was increased frequency of these shoppers that we, you know, were seeing before in this in this online channel. But then we also saw new shoppers coming in. We saw people that are older, like above 65 years old. We also mm-hmm. saw people outside of urban areas starting to buy their groceries online and also people that are less, less affluent. And we always need to get back to the motivations right behind the shopper and behind the consumer. And so, for instance, we take like the the elder demographics as people are staying at home, you know, for social distancing and, you know, saving, um, you know, for precautions. They saw online grocery shopping as actually an enabler to still get their food and their stuff delivered home. And so that's basically what we saw, what we saw behind it. And are you seeing this as a permanent shift or was it a tactical response so has this been the leg up that takes us to the next level of uh, online penetration or was it just you know an animal reflex? Right. It was one of the questions that we started to ask ourselves from the beginning. And so we put some of our resources against um, shopper surveys and understanding the shopper a little bit better. 
And what we saw is that a little bit over 50% of these shoppers that now started buying online groceries this year, they're saying that getting into 2021, they will keep doing some of their online groceries as well next year. So we think there's a bit of a shift that is a little bit more sustained uh, that has come and will stick for, for a little bit longer for sure. Just out of interest, Ruth, it's Jamie here. Um, You you talked about the way in which you work with your partners and that you effectively work through them, as it were, to get to consumers and shoppers, as you described. I suspect some stuff's happened during COVID times, but also even before COVID times, you had to kind of support your partners in the way in which would do the best job for you, as it were. Have have they changed much? Are are, Are you having to really sort of change the way in which you operate to get your partnerships to operate effectively for you? Well, there's, I mean, we always need to evolve, right? And adapt to new realities. So yes, I think all of us need to adapt and build the capabilities to serve the shoppers of the future. Maybe more from an immediate perspective, let me give you a few examples. With a sudden influx of new shoppers wanting to go and do their grocery shopping online, the capacity was severely constrained by our retailers, right? You know, there was like a sudden spike and they had to manage that um, that overflow. And so one of our first priorities as a CPG supplier was really to ensure that we had availability of our products, right? So really getting good data in terms of what's getting out, what's out of stock, and then also working with our supply chain with some creative solutions to make sure that we could have our products available. Just to give you a few examples, um, in Russia, we started doing night deliveries when the warehouses were a little bit more quiet, right? Versus kind of like, you know, the peak of the afternoon or, or, or the morning. And then in other markets like Germany, instead of just fulfilling the regular warehouses that we had been fulfilling for the past year, we started working with our retail partners to understand which warehouses had less capacity, were a little bit more free for us to deliver to them. Mm-hmm. And so just getting that agile way of working was very important you know, from an immediate perspective. But now, Jamie, as we look into the future, there's more capabilities that we're working on developing together uh, to make sure that we're successful. As we get into personalization, for instance, so instead of serving the same ad for every shopper, how do we ensure that we understand the journey that the shopper is in, what they're looking for to ensure that they see the right products is one of those areas where we're starting to build some uh, some of our capabilities. Okay, now, one of the evolutions, obviously, is direct-to-consumer. So, of course, yes. I know you are so happy with all of your retail partners <laughs> that... Uh, you know, there could be no reason to look elsewhere. However, D2C yes. is growing. And it's a combination of improved capabilities at your end, but also increased expectations in a Deliveroo, Uber, Just Eat kind of world where people expect you to just get things off the back of a bike. So how are you approaching D2C in Europe? All in, not in, trials? You know, what, what's your approach to that? So as we look into D2C, we got to make sure that there's a specific objective behind it, right? And not doing it just for the sake of, of doing it. And we see it as one of many options. It could be to build capabilities, a little bit of muscle inside. It could also be to generate insights and to just get data to help us maybe develop a few new products that we can test and learn for a few months on our own. And then once we lock down, what's the, the best proposition that we can actually launch with our retail partners? It could also be from a brand building perspective, just to make sure that we have presence of brand, that we also engage with consumers with novelty items or things that they cannot find in the, <laughs> in the regular stores. And then if those things work, we're always leaning behind our retail partners to make sure that we bring those learnings, those innovations back to our business with them. Let me give you a few examples of things that we've actually done in Europe. 
One of them has been with our kombucha brand, so this uh, fermented probiotic drink that we have. And in Spain... Can I just say that uh, both of our listeners to this podcast are fully familiar <laughs> with kombucha being, you know, global urban professionals. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. So just a little bit of promotion then on the podcast. <laughs> then. Um, but our consumers in Spain that were used to seeing this product in cafes and restaurants with the close downs that happened in March, April, they didn't have an outlet or outlets available for buying them. So we set up a direct-to-consumer website where we listed all of our products with all of the flavors, even a few more advanced kits for you know engaging with a brand. And then what we've seen is that people started engaging, buying, uh, trying out new flavors. And now then, since restaurants open, they're more familiar with the brand, they're more familiar with the right. with the flavors. So it serves you know a little bit of dual purpose there. Mm. The other example that I want to talk about is this direct-to-consumer proposition that we started doing in the Netherlands called Enwasted. And what is Enwasted? Enwasted is a surprise box that you buy on this direct-to-consumer website that has products that have lower shelf life versus what you would normally find in your regular retail store. has enough shelf life, safe to consume, but it just doesn't have the time anymore to go through the normal distribution routes. Okay. So we make them available online in this proposition as a surprise box because it depends on what's kind of like, you know, with low shelf life every week. And so since we launched it, we've actually been able to sell over 10,000 boxes and save over 130,000 products from being destroyed. And so it serves one of our key pillars of our strategy, which is sustainability. Um, mm. And so it's something that we're starting to build up a little bit more, expand with more brands, and that we look forward again just to test and learn and see how how we can scale it to to other markets if it has legs to run. Amazing. Jamie and I were chatting the other day about Dave Lewis, uh, uh, CEO at Tesco, and he was talking about food waste, saying that it accounted was it for 8% of, was it carbon emissions or so there's, like it was that. horrendous, yeah. uh, you know, cost to the planet as well as in human terms. So this is a great initiative. So if I want to access it, apart from moving to the Netherlands, uh, okay. what's the URL? Is it unwasted.nl? Yes, yeah. unwasted.nl. Yeah, exactly. Now, fantastic idea. However, after you had the idea, you then look around the office and there are a whole pile of MBAs high-fiving each other. But how do you actually make it work? So who did you ring to collate the boxes, deliver the boxes, et cetera, et cetera? How do you go from a sort of Pepsi-level idea to mm -hmm. consumer-level delivery? What was the journey between the idea and boxes landing on yeah. my, you know, Kaisersgracht pied à terre? Yes, very <laughs> <I> good <wish>. question. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the first thing that I want to talk about is actually the talent, right? And so if we look at the talent that we're bringing into the e-commerce organization, it's actually a blend of people that know consumer goods and know PepsiCo very well. But also mm -hmm. we're bringing talent from the outside, people that have worked in other e-commerce platforms, people that work in agencies, people that have actually worked in logistics as well. So just starting with that blend of talent is very important for us to ensure that we develop the right initiatives and we ensure that our plans and everything that we execute is consumer centric and also geared towards the next generation of consumers as well. So it's just not MBAs in a room, you know, it's mm -hmm. a more different and more varied type of talent profile. Mm -hmm. But then specifically for this product and, uh, and proposition in the Netherlands, we actually had a bit of a, a playful a competition called Dragon's Den, where different teams presented different options. Then it was voted, it went to leadership, 
it had different types of presentations to 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 be shared out with the with the relevant stakeholders and everybody was very supportive behind and wasted because one it helped us really build some of these capabilities for e-commerce but also mm-hmm. served really well the sustainability pillar of our business and then right. from the idea of just getting approved and getting you know the go we we, we got it together uh, a team of internal experts we also partnered with a few outside experts especially on the on the logistics side in terms of just making sure that we could put everything together and the one thing that we did want to do was make the consumer proposition um, very centric on usability. And for instance, like the website was designed to be mobile first versus desktop. So different angles that maybe wouldn't come up in a, in a traditional team, but, but this type of agile working and this different type of talent profile that we brought in really helped us hone in on the right proposition. Great. Well, look, we'll have your um, LinkedIn profile in the program notes. So if you get people uh, contacting you <laughs> saying, sounds yes. like a great place to work, we'll understand why. So, Rui, sounds like you're having too much fun in a way. So what's next on your agenda? So we're just starting the journey right now of e-commerce, right? Although we've been investing it uh, on it for the past few years, there's still a lot for us to do. And First of all, we want to make sure that we're very consumer centric in the products that we, that we develop. And especially, uh, we see ourselves as a little bit of a window into the future shopper. We want to make sure that we bring innovation capabilities into PepsiCo and start to develop new products that we first start with them online and then we can bring them to other retail partners. Let me give you just a few examples. Over the last year, we've done UEFA Champions League boxes to sell online. We've done partnerships with Call of Duty, with Doritos on the gaming angle as well. We started getting into new spaces like gifting. And last year in Christmas, we had a Doritos box that also had a a Christmas ornament and Doritos socks that was very successful and sold out. And there's a new one coming. There's a new new surprise coming soon this year uh, as well. So we want to keep being in a a window into the future, into the shopper and bringing in innovation, right? So that's a key piece for us. Then second, continue strengthening the partnerships that we have with our retail partners across Europe to develop new ways of serving our products. I already talked about personalization at scale as one of the initiatives within the marketing angle, but also in the future, getting more into the operational capabilities as well. So we see our agenda very linked with the retailer's agenda as well. And then lastly, it's all about the talent and the people, right? I talked a little bit about the talent profile when I was speaking about Unwasted. We want to make sure that we keep developing the right profile in terms of talent, bringing in the skills into the organization. That'll be important for us to keep succeeding in the, in the future. So still a lot of work for us to do. And uh, the whole organization, the whole leadership is very excited about that. Sounds great, Rui. Just one quick question. You said you talked about a lot of customer centricity and, and bringing new products online, testing them first. Has that changed the way in which you now view what products perhaps to acquire or brands to acquire or that kind of thing? You talked about your past involved in M&A. It's interesting to see whether that has really changed the profile of the type of brand you go for, or is a snack or a drink, are they still good snacks or drinks, whatever happens? Yeah. So I haven't worked in M&A for a while, so I'm not able to speak <laughs> to that. But PepsiCo will always be consumer-centric in terms of any decision that we make, right? Either from an M&A perspective or from a retail perspective or innovation perspective. Hey, Rui, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, we'd definitely love to catch up with you again next year and see how the continued growth in direct-to-consumer and sustainability is going. But for now, just a big thank you for joining us. No, thanks for having me, and, and thanks for the invitation for next year. I'll be here for sure, so we can catch up again. 
Very interesting chat there, Ian, I thought. Not one that we've really covered before, you know, a company like Pepsi. We've we've done a lot of retailers, but sort of moving into the food and beverage world, which was very interesting in itself. And also mm-hmm. the fact that their e-commerce team is clearly an area of growth for them and that they are expanding it, and which was, I, I don't know if that was a surprise to me, but it was certainly, you know, very interesting to hear. Yes, I, I'd look, I'd agree. And I think it's very much a sign of our age, which is brands going direct to consumer uh, and seeing the importance of that DTC channel. So we've seen that before, but also these very sophisticated global businesses that have optimized you know, their wholesale and partnership channels, now looking at how they get their hands dirty on day-to-day e-commerce as well. So I think there's so much more to come from this story. And I noted that Rui said he wants to come back. So we'll definitely pick up with that uh, on that offer and um, see him again in uh, 2021, which is you know, moments away now. So with thanks to Rui, let's turn our mind uh, slightly more special and onto specialist tea and coffee. So Wittard's a lovely British brand that has somehow got a lot bigger and uh, more rounded than uh, I'd personally remembered. So it was a great chance to catch up with Dan Mahoney, who's the customer director there. So hi, uh, good to be here. My name is Dan Mahoney. I, I work at Wittard at Chelsea. I've been working with Wittard for the last three and a half years. Uh, three and I'm- a half years? Three and a half years, yeah, which oh is a personal God. record, actually. Um, <laughs> so have, have, have definitely been really getting into this uh, this hot drink lark, going on a personal journey with that, which has been lots of fun. And yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm the customer director at, at Wittard, so responsible for all of our marketing efforts, our, our digital proposition, and customer service. So. Wittard of Chelsea, my beloved, dearly departed gran, would have thought this was the poshest thing in the world. Chelsea, <laughs> 1886. But in case anybody isn't you know, my gran's age, uh, tell us about the market position and the, the company. You know, Is this a, a tiny little store where you hand grind leaves in a basement in Chelsea? Are you franchised around the world? Just, just give us a, a shape of the company. As you called out, we are... We're out of Chelsea, 1886, which means uh, we will be 135 years old next year. So, oh my God, that's such a random number to pick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, that feels like a big birthday. I don't know if 135 does, yeah. years is a you know a landmark. It certainly feels yeah. like a, a, an important must be uh, a future some... anniversary or something. <laughs> yeah, Peter. yeah, Tea. yeah, whatever. So, so how how big is the company then? Because looking at your website, you seem to have quite a quite a lot of stores, which obviously I hadn't uh, come across. So yeah, so sh- shape of our company, we have just shy of fifty stores in the UK. Uh, we yeah. have a have an, an e commerce business, which you can see at witard.co.uk, and I would very much encourage everybody to go and check out. Um, and and then we have a growing international business. Um, so we've seen in the last few years, we've seen quite fast growth in China, which has been really exciting. So we we opened up a store on Tmall in 2016. Really, you know, the, the I guess the customer insight or validation for doing that was the response that we were seeing from Chinese consumers in our stores in the UK. Um, so 
Wittard is very popular um, or had been very popular with Chinese consumers visiting the UK. Uh, and that was sort of validation enough to, to start seeing whether we would see the you know, a, a positive response by having a local proposition in China. And that's been been really interesting. And yeah, I, you know, we have sort of, I guess, sort of in terms of consumer, there's there's a few different, it's a bit of a cube in terms of where the brand is interesting to different people. You have, we have a, a very loyal customer base. Many of many of our customers that have been with us for a long time who who love our classic English breakfast tea. Uh, some of our most loyal customers are coffee customers. So we have a, 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 a especially a Guatemala elephant is our as our sort of our best-selling coffee line, and we have a, a lot of consumers who come back back again and again for for that particular unique coffee. Guatemalan elephant coffee. Yes, which is um, especially. Big beans, which is part of the right. charm of that. It hasn't so, been through an elephant. It's not like civet coffee. <laughs> <laughs> not, not to my knowledge, no. Like um, recycled coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure that's a thing somewhere for someone. Um, so, yeah, so we have this sort of, in our home market, a long-standing brand loyalty from a very sort of passionate core consumer group. And, you know, we, we and we, we, you know, part of, my objective is is, is to, to sort of ensure that the brand is attractive and approachable for for, for younger customers as well. And, and actually, if you look at the the demographic profile of of, of our business, it's, it's very equally split. So that the brand is attractive to customers of all ages in the home market. We've also seen, as especially in our physical stores in the in the in the UK over the last few years, we've seen a great response from international visitors, so from from travellers and from tourism. Um, which is helping us shape our our international expansion um, for 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 the brand, uh, and then I guess the, the sort of the the other element of, of the business, which is very integrated in what we do, is, is gifting. So, you know, Wittard is very much seen as a place where customers will self gift or buy for others. Um, mm. So, that's sort of, I'd say the sort of three key moving parts is. Um, Sort of loyal customers who come back to, to for, for products that they believe and trust in, some to go on a journey and to explore new flavors. International customers who believe that the, the Brits do it best in terms of uh, heritage tea, and then then the sort of the gifting of you know solutions that we have. Yeah, and a you know, big thing for us actually as a as a brand about in terms of proposition that's that's been very important over the last few years is when I. Um, so I'm I'm actually from from Portsmouth, where we we do have a store um, now. We have a store in Gunwolf. We had previously had a store in Gunwolf, but there was a there was a break in between where we we didn't have a, a store for a few years. And so when I when I first took the role, the two things that people would say to me were, "Oh wow, I didn't know they were still around." Right. Yeah. And yes, I've got some plates or some bowls in my cupboard from Whitard. Um, I love them, and I've had them for years. And <laughs> You know and that that was a that was a big part of how the the business had had grown sort of in in times gone by was sort of in the ceramics space um, mm. and, and so now we as a as a brand are, are very focused on selling the finest tea coffee and hot chocolate you know we we want to be a drinks business and we want to have this quite unique multi category proposition for our customers interesting and so when people go oh I didn't know you're still around that indicates you know, both recognition of the brand, but also a lack of connection. So given that you have a customer role rather than an e-com role, how have you gone about 
you're reminding people that you're still around, those who aren't maybe within the obvious footprint of passing a store? Yeah, so yeah, even even more accentuated this this year, as I'm, I'm sure it has been for for many brands. But we've been trying to become more digitally native and as a brand, so that we can. So we have our foot, store footprint has changed over time. You know, if you go back ten years or so, Wittard had you know nearly three times the amount of physical coverage in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that beautiful piece of out of home advertising that sits on the high street that you can actually walk into disappears and and so yeah so it's it's been about finding new ways of 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 showing customers that that we're here we're we're more alive than ever that we've we've got classic products that people know about but we've also got we've got new innovation coming into our range and, um, you know, and a, and a reason for, it, it talked about younger consumers as well, but we want younger consumers to see Wittard as the best place to be buying their premium tea, coffee and hot chocolate and that it's not a brand that's for, for just for older generations. And do you, um, you, I mean, you talked about the categories, the additional categories you had outside of just tea, coffee and hot chocolate. Mm. Is that a way also to achieve what Ian was asking about, which is finding new customers, as it were, by offering new stuff? And, you know, I see there's quite a lot of sort of non-tea coffee and hot chocolate on there today, but I guess that might be expanding over time. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a a big opportunity for us that in terms of having branded equipment in a customer's house. And that's that's something that can. So so one thing that we love is our our iconic Wittard Caddy, you know, is is an important product for us, because if that can be sitting on someone's kitchen side or or, or on the pantry when friends are coming over and, and, and seeing our brand sitting on the side, that's a really positive thing. Also, you know, the concept of a of a caddy being empty tells you you need to to fill it up. So you have that whole um, sort of retention cycle or reminder that you need to buy. And I think that, that some of the bits that we've been trying to be become slicker and slicker at is if you're as organized as me when it comes to, say, drinking coffee, then you know you need coffee when the last beans go in the hopper. So it's like, oh, crikey, I, I need that <laughs> I, now, <laughs> you know, especially over the last few months. So it's then how we can remove the barriers to, 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 to enabling a customer to have products quickly and effectively however they want to get it. So we've been doing a lot of work on that as well. So coffee drinking is both going mad and highly innovative. So on the one hand, we have people like Pret who have their 20 quid a month nearly all you can drink up to five a day but not more frequently than every half hour blah 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 um thing which is seems to be going great guns you then got the gifting end which you've mentioned you got the fortnums uh you know who we interviewed a while ago gifting self-gifting etc and uh, there's also uh, a revival in people you know taking their coffee more seriously grinding at home i see with the uh vilfer burr grinders on your site so there's so much going on but the fundamental point is that you can't actually drink taste smell coffee in the digital domain so again it's back to this idea of you know how do you develop that authority so that people are coming to you and then maintain a conversation with them you know, in between the grinder being full and empty, you know, what, what is that customer communication like? One of the elements of our business that we were we were really excited about the success that we've been having, you know, through 
through till the beginning of this year was around yeah the kind of sort of a pocket three type experience that you can get in our stores um i think you know, we really believe that was the reason why we were seeing increasing traction and positive response from customers is that you can come in you can smell you can taste um so there was a lot of tasting available across different categories you know coffee included and and then you have knowledge as well you know so uh, my my first experience when joining wizard was one that i would imagine lots of first-time customers would have with this was like wow this is really interesting and they've got lots of amazing product but crikey it's intimidating and i don't know where to start Mm. um and that continues to be one of our biggest opportunities is how we can be the approachable authority across our three categories and, and make it accessible to people. Mm. So coffee's been really interesting through through lockdown as well. And I think, you know, talk talked a little bit about our, our cube of where our customers come from or, or how they think about Wittard. But we would never really have talked about Pret and Starbucks as brands where we might win business from um you know or win customer journeys from more, more specifically and of course that that is now an opportunity as people are now not spending 10 pound a day in pret or starbucks popping in and out getting their coffees they're, they're at home so that's become an opportunity for us to again show people that we're here and that we have a really interesting offer mm. but also actually helping people make that transition from what is the equipment that i need to drink coffee and if you talk about notes of lemon does that mean that this coffee actually tastes of lemon because i don't like lemon so it's making it's making some of this information easy to digest for mm. people and that's that's a big focus of a lot of our content you know we're, yeah. we're we're starting to amp up the amount of video content that we're building as a brand that we're trying to do in in our way which is, a, is approachable and accessible and and informative and we don't we don't want to be a a beard stroking trendy coffee roastery we want to be a brand where i don't have a beard um (laughs) there's a main reason but no no you know we want to be a brand where people can can actually figure out how to break into this thing that is loose coffee um, and and then come on a journey and, and just have sort of consistent great product um, so we have a number of limited editions, for example, in the coffee space that, that flow in and out of the business. And we've done a lot of work around how different equipment can um, can give you very, very different experience of drinking coffee as well. Yeah. Now, some years ago, we were knocking back coffees in a different place. So you were up in the Alps uh, running a very different business. So uh, t- just... Tell us quickly how you ended up here and a quick career thumbnail and what brought you to Wittards. Right, yes. So, no, it was it's definitely so my, my, my previous role before being with Wittard was with the VF Corporation. I was running e-commerce for Timberland. And you're right, we were drinking very different size of coffee. So it was espresso versus... Yeah. Um, it was a very nice machine that I'd have just been on 50 a day if I worked there. <laughs> yeah so my journey i guess is i'm yeah now in a, in a sort of a more broader marketing or customer proposition post um but it has is really born out of e-commerce so yeah my first job was working with the pentland brands um you know putting brands online for the first time so helping a brand like speedo launch e-commerce um so being part of that first wave of uh how do you make a 
our first ever direct-to-consumer e-commerce transaction, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah. And then I've, I've worked for a couple of US startup businesses as well. I worked for a company called Zulily, who... Oh, yes, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, who, who were a, um, a pure play um, e-commerce shop for mums, so a sort of closed-door flash sales website. And that, that, was an ama- that was sort of an amazing experience for understanding customer data, customer behavior, I mean, from an e-commerce perspective, knowing everybody that was logged into your website and what they were doing and how they were behaving. And that was, a, that was an incredible amount of learning to do from, from that business, which was, which was really exciting. Mm. Yeah, and, and I worked for Monsunit Accessorize for a while as well, um, trying to figure out how we would grow e-commerce and digital marketing outside of the UK. So, so that was fun. Yeah, and, and so, so I guess pre-Wittard, it was all very clothing-focused um, in, in, in different Yes, and also I think more in the digital domain, whereas yes. now it's the focus has moved to customer in all her, you know, many varieties and, you know, behaviours and habits. So you're looking now uh, across online and offline, so full multi-channel role. Yes, that's that's right. And when I joined Wittard, some of the key things to focus on were around um, developing our, our CRM program. Um, so understanding more about our customers, how they're behaving in our stores and how they're behaving online and how we can build better products and services. And that's been a, a real foundation for, uh, the, I guess, the evolution of, of my role at Wittard is, is, is really trying to understand our more about our customers and, and how we can be better for them. And I guess sort of as a brand, we have we've been quite UK-centric in, in a lot of our customer development plans. And what we're now trying to two sort of very big areas that we're trying to to crack is how we can um, come up the marketing funnel. So be less focused on on sort of transactional marketing and, and how we can actually be more focused on brand development and brand engagement in the home market and also have a, a, a brand marketing model that is unique. And I think that's sort of one thing that I've, I've learned being at Wittard is that the, we, we need to build our own marketing strategy that's very unique to us, that isn't off the shelf, that, we, that someone isn't going to give us um, if it's going to be exceptional and it's going to be best in class. Um, and then we've got to figure out how we use that to to grow and develop in new markets, which is a big strategic focus for us as a brand. Mm. And a lot of British and heritage brands, you see they go through this phase where uh, all of a sudden you find them in every mall and every airport uh, catering to that, you know, just spend $50 and get a chunk of Britishness to give to your mum when you get home, that sort of tourism thing. Um, how do you move beyond that then to have a real engagement with connoisseurs, with people who enjoy the drinks in other countries, you know, is it is the heritage route the only route, or is there a a real sort of global cohort of people who just love your coffee in your unique way? That's a great question. I, th- I think that's the bit that we're really trying to crack um, and, and really trying to figure out. We we feel like we've we've done a great job in making our brand experience and our home market very attractive to international customers. It, it's now how 
to not be a brand that's seen as a as a treat because I'm on holiday or I'm visiting a market and I'm taking home some memorabilia for for myself or for my family, and actually I have a, a brand proposition that that customers love because of its of its heritage and also of our because of our product quality and our authenticity in this space. But to develop retention, to to develop customer relationships that are deep and meaningful, and and not cosmetic because of uh, you know maybe maybe the the wonderful brand heritage crack that and I feel like that in some ways despite a lot of the challenges that have come with this year that's giving us a great opportunity to to be a lot more digitally first from a new market perspective so that we can we can learn a lot more faster and adapt what we're doing and mm. you know that's yeah so that that in, in in a strange way is helping us I think Good. Well, now, um, you said the adapt word. 2020, the year of adaptation. How did the lockdown and COVID affect you, you know, especially from a running the team and maintaining the business perspective? How's, how's that been for you? It's it's definitely been tricky at times. You know, I, I think as a, as a business, you know, co- company-wide, we had so most people have been trying to face into what does remote working mean to us? What does flexible working mean? And and we hadn't quite perfected how we wanted to do that as a as a company, and you know there were certain teams or functions that that we felt or they felt like couldn't work remotely. And then of course overnight the whole company was working remotely. You know I, I'm sure you've talked about this this with others as well, but that that was a huge cultural change to to how to think and how to work. And, um, and how, how do said, we navigate that? Yeah. So who are the people? I mean, obviously not naming names, but you know which teams previously felt oh we need to be in an office or a location and then how how do they look at it now one of my teams so the, the customer service group and it was just it was just difficult to picture this sort of really positive bunch of people that live our brand but bounce off one another and hear what's going on and understand the vibe of what customers are calling in about and mm. you know are the most talkative interactive team in the business then suddenly being remote yeah it was difficult to picture that, for example. And how they managed to keep that service, but also, you know, while doing it from, I don't know, the spare room or, you know, perch somewhere with a laptop. Their feedback is that from an effectiveness and an efficiency perspective, it's been brilliant. You know, I think like many of us have felt that. But, you know, because you haven't got the buzz of the office going on around you the whole time. But it's more the sort of the connectiveness and the learning um, has been more tricky. And, and you know, and as we sort of go forward and we're looking at a fairly busy few months ahead um, and maybe bringing some new people into that team is, is how we do that, you know, onboarding into a service team, sort of frontline dealing with customers, wanting to deliver this amazing, memorable brand experience. More tricky to bring in someone who's a, you know a, a temporary team member remotely to understand mm-hmm. and feel the brand and how we try to talk and how we deal with issues and so that's that's an interesting challenge that lies ahead. Um, I think you know we've we've just we've put a lot of focus into to sort of vibrancy of sharing our customer voice in in this area. You know how we can try and really bring to life what customers are saying and make that even more important, more important than ever. You know not just metrics and data, but the qualitative voice the of the customer what are they saying yeah, exactly. yeah the stories exactly and it's 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 kind of easy to sometimes not be bringing that to life and actually in our in our weekly trade meetings we've made a big effort recently we have a you know a voice of a customer report that we make sure is one of the most important 
discussions in that in that weekly session so that we're really understanding you know what are our customers struggling with you know we we, we get we get lots of wonderful feedback you know the, our, our brand sentiment's really positive we have high social engagement but there are things that there are bad experiences that, that are being had and, and we should be talking about that and not sensitive to it you know we might not like why it happened but it happened and um yeah. we should all be aware of it um, and, and try and do something about it. That's been really good. That that's helping us think differently. And so, how is the exit from first lockdown looking? I'm I'm hesitant to uh, say we're out of it because obviously, as we look around, there are local lockdowns. There's uncertainty. So you know, we're looking at the period formerly known as peak. You've got 50 stores, which I can see you're you know starting to open, etc. You know, what what does the next couple of months look like? to you what's the trajectory that you're planning planning trajectories is pretty tricky definitely <laughs> as, as, um, as i said that that's kind of a silly thing way for it. How, how's the next couple of months looking <laughs> with that way i guess you know what, what we're trying to plan for especially we're trying to plan for having you know good numbers of customers coming to our stores if you get, would go to a wittard store in december for the last few years it would absolutely charming and wonderful but elbow to elbow you know that's part of the fun yeah. is people leaning over one another grabbing drinks tasting and that that's not going to happen you know unlikely there's going to be that amount of consumers on the high street of course but also that can't happen in our stores you know we're going to have to change our customer experience that's safe and comfortable for customers where you don't get that hustle and bustle despite it being so charming that of course is not what anybody wants at the moment and it's not something that we can have um happening in our stores so there's a lot of work going on that and then i think on the, on the digital side it's it's planning for planning for it being really crazy and there's a lot of operational readiness to that you know from everything from you know your our, our site experience and inventory availability and fulfillment and carriage is going to be really interesting and we need to be we need to be ready for that, and I think probably the, the challenge is there's all that going on. So at this time of year, you'd be kind of saying, right, guys, park the projects. Let's focus on delivering the rest of the year. You know, we're a, still a huge part of our business is gifting and Q4 orientated. But we're also looking into next year and thinking the future of our business has to be, or, it, or the short to midterm has to be digital. We need more capabilities. We need to have better, more localized, more customer-friendly customer propositions in some of our key markets. So our challenge is preparing for what potentially in certain areas of the business is going to be the craziest, yeah. busiest Q4 you could ever imagine. Not like, oh, plus 25% was a good year, guys. Like, you know, mad. As well as knowing that we need to be building better capabilities to to sort of sustain our midterm future. So there's there's a there's a lot to do, you know, and it's figuring out how to get people working on the right things in the right places so that we're we can make the most of a very tricky year for everybody. Um, but also not hit January and think, right, where are we? What are we doing? What next? Okay, okay. You know, so um So you need to keep your head down but also keep it up. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. I think that's that. Yes. Well welcome to welcome to modern multi channel is uh, you have to be <laughs> you know, in the second and strategic at the same time. Well, look, I've been um, just totally distracted by these chocolate spoons 
uh, on your website. <laughs> this is what my yes. sports teacher used to say to me, which is I was about as useful as a chocolate spoon in a scrum. So now I understand that it was actually a compliment. Uh, so I think we have changed. You know, we normally give um, prizes like an iPad when people fill in our surveys. So I think we need to change that now to maybe giving someone some gift vouchers for chocolate spoons. Far more motivating. No, yes, absolutely. Well, we actually, I mean, one you know, one thing, of course, that I'm sure everybody is trying to figure out is is sort of uh, to understand where there might be new business opportunities as well within in the brand that you need to sort of pick up from some areas where there's less trade happening. So, co- corporate gifting is a new area for us this year. Mm. So, we just launched a new corporate gifting proposition Ooh. a couple of weeks ago, which we're really excited yeah. about. So, we're sort of, we're hoping that. You know, again, lots of companies under pressure, but hope, hopefully people are going to be um, investing in gifting for one another when we can't be having, or people can't be having Christmas parties and celebrating together. So, um, All right. Well, I'll contact you separately for that for the um, retailing <laughs> corporate gifting discount. Uh, but I think there's, a, there's definitely a plan there. And so everyone listening can... Um, you know, wait in anticipation for your delivery to come through, yeah? Luckily, since we only <laughs> yeah. have um, two listeners, it's not going to break the bank to, uh, <laughs> to, send, send to each of them. So uh, that's great. And, uh, thanks for joining us. I think uh, we definitely need to catch up again in the spring to see how the post-peak planning went. Lots of peas there, but uh, really interesting. And, you know, every best wish for a busy and successful couple of months trading. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, we'd be happy to to catch up again. Good. Look forward to that. So what struck me from that conversation was that he's clearly got a bit of a passion for tea and coffee. I don't know whether he always had it or whether he's sort of picked it up as being part of his job, as it were. But I think I think that goes to show is that it is more helpful when you do at least have some kind of interest in, in what you're selling and what you're doing and all that sort of stuff. And, and Dan certainly felt like he had that. Yeah, I think it's it's great, but also I think it shows how, you know, you can't just sit in the office and be a technocrat. Mm. Uh, you know, in this customer age, we all have to love and know our products. We all have to know and love our customer. And really, there's that shared passion that binds the retailer and the consumer together as much as the technology or the channels. So I think it's a very, very interesting um, development. You know, for him and I think a, a, a takeaway for all of us about that but you know the main takeaway for me is chocolate on a stick you know <laughs> I'm just heading there I think it's sold our Christmas present conundrum there well quiet I'll take it off a so, stick on a stick I'll take it any which way you anyway want, really. <laughs> no, look, just as we're heading off this is going to be our last uh, podcast mm. of the calendar year what does Christmas in the Merrick household have in store for you Oh, great time question. Off or yeah. All the way through. Plenty of time off, I hope. But uh, I think it's going to be a bit quieter this year, a little bit more slimmed down in terms of uh, personnel. Uh, yes, but... slimmed down in terms of our <laughs> physics as well. Yeah, so, exactly. So we'll just leave you on that happy note, uh, wishing everybody season's greetings, a very Merry Christmas, and hoping that in between the mania of e-commerce shopping, everyone will get a chance to have rest and relaxation. We're back in the studio, I think, fifth or sixth, so uh, an incredible start of the year. Uh, No spoilers yet. But as ever, do let us know if you'd like us to speak with anybody, if you'd like to volunteer yourself, because 2021 is definitely going to be the year of the airwaves. So do make sure you join us 
in the studio where Jamie, the countdown to physically seeing each other again and being in a studio must uh, must have started. I can't Back wait, Ian. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to all our <laughs> listeners. That's great. So we'll see you in 2021. And until then, happy trading. 